Hello, and welcome to Primary Sources, a production of the Central Arkansas Library System, where we focus on people making a difference in Little Rock and Arkansas. Some you might have heard of, and some you haven't heard of, but probably want to know about. Check out cals.org slash podcasts for more Primary Sources interviews. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to Primary Sources, a podcast of the Central Arkansas Library System. I'm Matt DeCampbell, your host. And today we have Dr. Nate Smith, who is the director of the Arkansas Department of Health, which also makes him the chief medical officer of the state. Is that the correct term? Or chief health officer? The official uh, term is state health officer. State health officer. Great. And the Department of Health, of course, covers a wide range of uh, of issues, and we're going to get to some of that. But first... Let's start with you, your upbringing, and what started to steer you toward medicine in your life. Well, uh, both of my parents are physicians, so I think it was probably doomed that I would uh, eventually fall into health, although uh, in college I entertained the idea of being an electrical engineer. Uh, That didn't last very long, (laughs) but uh, this has been a, a good field, a good career for me. I didn't grow up in Arkansas, uh, but I got here as soon as I could. <laughs> Prior to coming to the Arkansas Department of Health, I uh, worked as a medical missionary in Kenya and was also on the faculty at Baylor College of Medicine in, in Houston, Texas. Yeah, Arkansas is a way of trapping those of us who uh, who move here from out of state. So let's, let's talk about uh, your missionary trips, especially because your background, for people that don't know, is in epidemiology. And I, I assume either that was early on in that point, or that's what kind of sealed that that's what you wanted to do? I actually went to medical school really with the idea of being a a medical missionary. When I did my graduate training in internal medicine, I uh, got interested in in the area of HIV. HIV was new at that time. So I did some additional training in HIV medicine and in infectious diseases, then went off to Kenya as a medical missionary, was in Kenya for a total of about seven years, four years the first time, and then three the second, and then came back in 2009, really for family reasons. So compare for me, you know, we all know to a degree how wide the spread of HIV was as it grew in America in the 80s and 90s. How does East Africa compare to that as far as the speed of growth and the rate and the size? HIV really uh, had an explosive expansion in Central and East and then eventually South Africa. Really, it's thought that that was where it began, uh, and then with urbanization and travel, transport, really, really took off. Uh, Modes of transmission there in Africa are are somewhat different than here. It's, It's mostly spread you know, within families. And the HIV treatment program that we had there was really family focused because we seldom just had one person. It was usually wife, husband, children all together. So uh, that was uh, a unique time in history when I was in Kenya. The rate of HIV infection among adults was about 16%. It's now much lower than that Mm -hmm. due to a lot of positive reasons, but it was a real crisis at that time. When we arrived in Kenya, about half of the uh, patients in the hospital tested positive for HIV. Mm. That also included half of the children in the hospital. So what was it like for you the first time you walked into one of those hospitals or one of those villages, obviously having, you know, limited exposure not only to the to the culture, but this level of an outbreak? 
One of the challenges that I faced when we first came to uh, Kenya was uh, the issue of stigma around HIV. I remember my very first day rounding on the wards at uh, Kijabi Hospital where we were based. There were two patients who had been tested positive for HIV but had not been informed of their status. And they were there in the hospital because no one was uh, willing or felt able to, to share with them their status. So that was part of my work that day, wow. is, to, is to be able to give that news in a way that was truthful, but also hopeful in some way. Sure, because that's what you were there to do, obviously, was to provide help and hopefully hope for some of them. So what was it about those two people compared, because obviously there were a lot of other HIV patients. What, was there something particular that about those two people that others shied away from telling them? or? Could you ever figure it out? Well, <clears throat> the person who had the training in, uh, in HIV counseling was on leave. Uh-huh. And so they just stayed in the hospital. So one of the first things that we did was to try and give those skills, empower all the nurses in the, in the hospital to be able to feel comfortable uh, talking with, with people about their HIV status. And, and that, that helped move us towards a more positive view uh, of dealing with not just HIV, but with the stigma associated with it. Is that what you saw over the years that you spent there? Not only the slow reduction in the in the rates, but also a more understanding culture around it? Yes, that's true. Uh, I would have to say it got worse before it got better. Okay. But one of the first things that we did was to start working in the communities, talking with them about HIV and really partnering with community leaders and with churches in the communities. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first got there, someone shared with me they had been riding on public transportation and overheard a conversation. They were talking about our hospital. They said, it's a good place to go if you're sick, but if you have HIV, don't go there because they'll test you without your knowing and then everyone in the community will know. So the hospital didn't have a very good reputation. Uh, fast forward about five years later, and uh, it was completely different. Uh, people would come to our hospital and say, your community is so supportive, so accepting of people living with HIV. You know, I wish we didn't, you know, that we had a, a community like that. And I said, it didn't start that way, but it's something that you can work towards if you work with people in the community and get messages out there. I think that probably was the beginning of my interest in, in public health, addressing populations and communities rather than j- just one individual at a time. So what were the biggest lessons during your time there? You're already talking about some of the cultural side, the lessons, but also from the, the medical side and the epidemiology side that you know, you've been able to, to, to carry forward in your, your work in the decades since. Matt, it would be hard for me to summarize all the things that I, I learned from, from Kenya because I think I tap into that as a resource uh, pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. But the value of, of working with communities, the value of working in teams, uh, African culture is a lot more communal and collective than, than ours is. I really learned a lot from my Kenyan colleagues. They taught me a lot. I don't forget that. So when you get back stateside from your second time over there, or, well, I, I guess let's start with your first time back. I mean, were you back just raring to go and to get into to more public health type work? I mean, because you had a private practice as well, right, when you did? Yes. After we came back from our first four-year uh, term in Kenya, uh, that's how we, we ended up in Arkansas. There were some 
folks here that we met that offered myself and my wife uh, jobs. My wife is an obstetrician gynecologist, and we thought we were coming back for about a year, and then that we'd be returning uh, right away. Uh, that ended up stretching into four years for for various reasons. During that time, I made a switch from private practice to the health department and uh, started there as medical director for infectious diseases. So then you get called back to Kenya, and then when you come back from there, did you just slot right back into where you were? We weren't sure exactly where we were going to end up when we, uh, when we came back. Um, I was actually working for University of Maryland School of Medicine uh, as their faculty lead in Kenya. And so that was an option. Uh, my wife has family in the Baltimore area. And of course, my wife and I grew up in the Houston area, and we had uh, friends and colleagues there. But Dr. Joe Bates was the one who recruited me back uh, to be state epidemiologist. Uh, I think he had heard me, overheard me, say one time that I thought being state epi epidemiologist sounded like a really cool job. So he came with his uh, guns loaded. <laughs> Dr. Bates is, uh, is difficult to say no to. He is, absolutely. What do people, be they Arkansans or others, what are a lot of the common misconceptions they have about epidemics and how they spread and what can cause them? Each epidemic has its own unique features. And so I think some, one of the common misconceptions is that all epidemics are, are alike. And things tend to be a little bit more complicated more in, and more nuanced than people imagine. Fortunately, uh, you don't have to understand something completely to be able to respond appropriately and to protect yourself and your community and your family. What we try in an epidemic situation really is to communicate well with people in the community. And that means being honest about what we know, but also honest about what we don't know, and to be transparent in what we're planning to do and uh, what we hope to do. And these are, I think, the critical things is to build that trust relationship. And of course, for us, trust is not something that you start building when there's an epidemic. Sure. It's something that you build every day. How do you handle the situations? Because I know we've had over the past 15 years, especially a lot of, I don't want to say scares because there were actual cases, but a lot of viruses and things that came from across oceans that people thought were going to be a much bigger deal than they ended up being. Kind of like, you know, in my head, it's kind of like weather forecasting, right? You know, you, you try to make everyone as safe as you can, but sometimes the, the danger doesn't come to be and they get a little skeptical about you the next time around. From my perspective, from the perspective of the health department, really the the best outbreak response is the ones that you never hear about. And uh, we have all sorts of near misses uh, really on an ongoing basis uh, that never make it to the front page of the newspaper because they're addressed aggressively early on. Just in the past month or two, we've had at least a couple that I can think of. When they get larger and they get more attention, in some ways that's easier for us to respond to because people are engaged. They're listening and they want to take actions to protect themselves and their families and their communities. Most epidemics start with a, a single case or two. Yeah. That's the time when we go into high gear not that we want to keep things from people's attention, but we know that if we can keep an epidemic small, we'll protect the health and well-being of our Kansans. In a state that's as spread out and a lot rural as Arkansas is, you hear a lot about herd immunity and how that you know can help in times of epidemic and things. 
is it harder to establish that in some parts of the state because people are still living so spread out compared to uh, a lot of other states and a lot of big cities? I think the answer to that question really depends a lot on the specifics of, of what type of outbreak we're talking about. I've come to really love uh, rural areas. I, I didn't really grow up uh, in a rural area. Houston's I'm, about as unrural as yeah. you can be. Now, I was actually in a small town outside oh, of okay. Houston, but uh, a small Texas town is, is a, is a medium-sized <laughs> Arkansas uh, town or city. That's generous. <laughs> but I've really come to appreciate the strength of rural communities, and I, I think I really saw that when I was in Kenya, because I was living in a rural area, but also um, visiting many of our communities here in Arkansas. And they have unique strengths, but they also have some common features. I think that uh, in terms of spread of infectious diseases, uh, low population density oftentimes is, is on our side uh, as opposed to big cities where organisms can be passed around very quickly. But it can also present challenges in terms of getting people access to care and making sure that we're detecting uh, outbreaks in a timely fashion. And with some things uh, that are not uh, infectious disease outbreaks, for example, the opioid crisis, mm -hmm. there can be some real challenges in making sure that people in rural areas have access to services, but also access to, to accurate information and messaging that's appropriate to them. And treatment when Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the flu because that's been on everyone's mind a lot the past few months. I, I don't know if you have a good number, but people say the worst in 10 years and 18 years and definitely a banner year uh, for the flu. How did we, from the medical standpoint, how did we get to have a season like this? All the factors that go into whether a flu season is severe or less severe, not all those factors are, are, are fully understood. We do know that the flu virus will mutate. It's constantly mutating, and that's why we have a, a different flu vaccine uh, each year. Right. The particular strain that has been causing most of the illness uh, this year is an influenza A, uh, H3N2, and during seasons where that is the predominant strain, we tend to see more severe illness, uh, more deaths, particularly uh, among those who are older, 65 and older. Now, why this one is worse than other seasons where we've had uh, H3N2, there's a, a lot of possibilities. I'm not sure anyone can point their finger at exactly what the cause is. I just got back from a meeting at the CDC, uh, the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, and they reviewed the flu data, and they don't exactly know uh, all the reasons either. People getting vaccinated, do those rates change, specifically on the flu vaccine? I mean, we can talk about that more in general. But as far as the flu, do those numbers fluctuate much year to year, or is it pretty consistent, or are we convincing more people to get the vaccine no matter what? I would say the trend here in Arkansas especially has been over the last 10 years or so, we've seen a steady increase in the number of people who have been immunized for uh, influenza. Uh, we particularly focused on school-aged children, mm -hmm. and we are doing better than most of the country in terms of our rates among school children. The reason why we have focused on school children is, is one, I think we all care about our children. We hate to see any influenza deaths, but to have children dying from flu, that is particularly tragic. Mm -hmm. and, and we've had, we've we've had a few cases, fortunately only a few. 
The other reason is is that once you get a bunch of sick kids, it's not possible to continue education properly, and, and schools end up having to shut down or, or education is interfered with. But there are other reasons why um, we considered it strategic to, to focus on school-aged children. One is they get uh, some of the best responses to the flu vaccine of any age group. And if you think about it, our bodies are really revved up as kids yeah. to, to protect us because we're encountering new, new organisms, new germs all the time. By immunizing children, they're getting the best level of protection. So when they say that the flu vaccine is you know, only 36% effective, well, among school-aged children, it's much, much higher than that. Good. <laughs> and, of course— Kids with all that energy, too, means they go a lot more places and they encounter a lot more people than, than adults. And if they have it, obviously they can. That's right. A child who's got the flu is, is likely to infect more other people, including older Arkansans who may be more susceptible, may be at higher risk for death. Mm -hmm. So overall, uh, vaccine rates in Arkansas, uh, of course, nationally for five, ten years now, there's been some pushback to the and some obviously very dubious, I don't even want to call it science, but claims about vaccines. Have we seen that make much of an impact in Arkansas, or has it pretty, stayed pretty steady? Most of the issues that people have had about vaccines uh, have had more to do with our routine childhood vaccines. There are some people who are cautious about getting a flu shot for various reasons, but we're seeing more and more individuals taking flu shots as time goes on. Uh, especially as we have more places where people can get the flu shot easily, like pharmacies, for example. Uh, we have school-based uh, clinics so that kids can get it more easily. We have our mass vaccination clinics, and they're available in our local health units as well. Uh, so we're seeing a better uptake. Healthcare workers, that's been an important achievement, I would say, for Arkansas, is that we have more and more healthcare workers who are getting the flu shot. We've come to realize that people will shed virus for up to 20, for 24 hours uh, before they actually de develop any symptoms. And then there's some people who never really do develop severe symptoms, but they can be spreading the virus to other people. So having our healthcare workers immunized protects their patients. So it's become really a patient safety issue. Good. And, and on those routine childhood vaccines, is that a relatively steady acceptance in Arkansas, or has there been some pushback with the spread of internet conspiracies and all those factors? No, we have seen the number of what we call non-medical exemptions uh, for childhood uh, vaccinations. We've seen those creep up uh, ever since we allowed for the philosophical exemptions. We had a, a religious exemption for many years, but very few people utilized that. Mm -hmm. And then once there was a philosophical exemption, we've seen those rates creep up. They're still not terribly high compared to maybe perhaps some other states, mm -hmm. but it's not evenly distributed across uh, across the state. And there are some school districts where you have a, a higher concentration of people who have uh, questions or concerns and have not had their children immunized. Now, we had a huge mumps outbreak this past year. I think that got people's attention and, and, and many kids who uh, whose parents were reluctant maybe before uh, went ahead and, and had them immunized to protect them against a, an, an outbreak. But, um, you know, it's a constant challenge. We want to make sure that we get good, accurate information out to parents, uh, to individuals who are considering immunization. You're right, there's misinformation out there as well. We want to take it seriously, 
uh, but also give accurate information so that people understand the protection that's available to them. And how much of those protections improved in the past 20, 30 years? Because it seems like that there are constantly new like I was jealous when I heard there was a chickenpox vaccine now because I had a miserable week as a child <laughs> dealing with that, and then shingles for adults as well. How how far have we come since the 70s and 80s? There's a, a lot more conditions that we're able to protect people against, and I, I think in some cases we've been able to improve our, our immunizations to where they have fewer side effects. For example, we went to an acellular pertussis vaccine that is has much fewer uh, side effects. So we're making good progress. A frontier that we're really trying to push is adult immunizations because although we've got fairly good rates among children, adults oftentimes don't think of immunizations as part of their health. Right, unless maybe they're traveling internationally or exactly. something. Exactly, like, yeah. exactly. But the flu shot has, um, is a good place to start. One of the groups, uh, large groups, uh, that, that's a, a challenge is, is um, people who have uh, underlying medical conditions. Mm -hmm. Really all of them should be getting a flu shot and we don't have anything near full coverage for our people with underlying medical conditions. And they're the ones who are most likely to suffer serious adverse sure. effects. Sure. But then we also have the pneumococcal vaccine to prevent uh, a very important cause of pneumonia. Um, we have uh, the shingles uh, vaccine, uh, zoster vaccine. So these are things that I think we're starting to um, get the message out that this is part of, of aging in a healthy way, but we're not completely there yet. Let's talk some about the health department. And what are, to start out, some of the services that you guys provide that a lot of people seem not to know about? Boy, there's a lot of stuff that we do. And I, and I have to say, uh, even though I've been with the department now for over 10 years, I'm, I'm learning about aspects of what we do every day. Um, it's, it's really broad, everything from radiation control to cosmetology to plumbing board to tattoos to then all the uh, outbreak response that we know about and the services that we offer in our local health units. What we do, I sort of lump into three large categories. One are evidence-based preventive health services, the things that we offer in our local health units like immunizations, uh, women's health, uh, WIC, uh, nutrition program mm -hmm. for, for children and pregnant women, and the other various services like uh, TB treatment, et cetera. Then we have uh, another category of programs uh, to protect and improve the health of our residents in Arkansas. And this, this includes our outbreak response, but also uh, programs addressing chronic diseases and risk factors like tobacco use and obesity prevention. And then the third category is licensing and certifications, and we have a lot of uh, a lot of that that we do as well. We we license hospitals in the state. We uh, certify many different types of practitioners. In all three of these areas, there are there are services and and programs that people are aware of, and then there are ones that uh, that they're not not very aware of. And, and can you think of one? If I'm just you know John or Jane Arkansan out there that most people could take advantage of, but they don't know about it or they, they don't seize on the opportunity that would really help them? I think at our local level, most people in communities are surprised at the services that we offer in our local health units. We have over 90 local health units 
and each county has at least one. And uh, many people are just not even aware that there is a local health unit in their county. And they can get immunizations there, they can get women's health services, uh, they can get WIC. Um, if they have, in, in, in some of them we have a pilot program to help manage uh, hypertension together with their primary care doctor. We're working on some programs to address diabetes prevention and diabetes management. So uh, I think there's a lot of folks out there who are not aware that there is a local health unit in their county or where it is or, or what the services are. I think it's important that, that uh, we do have that kind of knowledge, though, because in a large outbreak setting or, or a public health event or an event that has public health uh, consequences, then, then those are a focus area for our preparedness activities, uh, getting medications or vaccinations out to the public. That's part of why we do our mass vaccination clinics is so that we can raise some awareness through our flu vaccine that uh, this is this is where you would come if we had an anthrax, a bioterrorism event, or something of that sort. Right. And you mentioned uh, preventative programs, specifically with diabetes. In public health in general, what is the biggest area of focus right now for preventative outreach in medicine? In Arkansas, uh, most of our top 10 causes of death and disease are chronic diseases. And uh, the risk factors that are responsible for about half of our deaths in Arkansas have to do with tobacco and obesity. And by, uh, when we talk about obesity, we're talking about nutrition and physical activities. So a lot of the things that we do is to try and prevent tobacco use, encourage uh, physical activity, and uh, promote uh, good, uh, healthy nutrition. If we can do those th three things, uh, then we can substantially reduce the number of premature deaths as well as uh, disease and disability in our state. For younger adults and children, the leading cause of death is, is injuries, motor vehicle injuries, but also a whole variety of other unintentional injuries. Added to that is uh, the epidemic of opiate misuse and, and, and overdose. And so we're really trying to um, step up to the plate in terms of getting messages out uh, about how to prevent opiate addiction, how to recognize and manage it, and how to hopefully help people live healthier lives without, uh, without opiates, but still with adequate pain management when, sure. when they need it. And can you give us some sort of scale? Because everyone hears about opioids in the past, especially the past few years, and the sharp rise in, in abuse and cases and overdoses and things like that. Can you kind of map out the scale of how far it's come in Arkansas in, say, the past five years? Arkansas has really uh, followed the same pattern as the rest of the country. And really, over the last 10 or 20 years, we've seen growing use of prescription uh, opiates. And um, Arkansas has one of the highest rates of opiate prescriptions per, per person in the state. And that has led to a, a number of adverse consequences. One is, is people addicted to their prescription, also a lot of diversion pills out there in medicine cabinets and, you know, in dresser drawers end up being used by people for whom they were not prescribed. Sure. And then what we've seen across the country is as people become more aware of overdose deaths from prescription drugs 
and uh, prescribers have been become more careful about prescribing. We've seen nationally, we've seen uh, opiate deaths from prescription uh, drugs decreasing, but we've seen rapid rise in opiate overdose deaths from heroin and fentanyl and other illegally acquired drugs. In Arkansas, we're just starting to see that increase in, in heroin and fentanyl. We're lagging a little bit behind there, which is a good thing. And hopefully, um, with uh, more focused efforts, uh, our naloxone program to prevent the deaths and some of our public health messages you know, will, will help us to keep from getting hit by that as hard as, as for example, in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Does the department have any investigative role when you do have an outbreak of overdose deaths? I, I remember just within the last month, there was a rash here in Little Rock, you know, likely all tied to a certain batch or, or shipment or what have you. It, when you guys find out about those, are there are there steps that you take to try to trace it, or is it usually just uh, too hard to follow that path? It's very challenging when you're dealing with illicit drugs, illegal drugs, uh, and we have to work very closely with our partners in law enforcement, uh, DEA, state police, uh, local law enforcement. Uh, I think we've had good partnerships with them. One of the areas that we partnered early was with the synthetic uh, cannabinoids, synthetic uh, stimulants, the K2s, K2, yes. Spice. And um, one of the ways that we helped out was by helping to develop assays to actually detect uh, these compounds in blood and in urine uh, samples. With the the heroin and the fentanyl, it's a little bit more challenging. One of the key ways that we've partnered is is with the, the naloxone. The first responders have access to that, and others who have risk factors can get naloxone without a prescription. Now, uh, as we went forward with this uh, with this law, the pharmacist pointed out that, that the law may say that, that uh, they don't need a prescription, but their computers have to have a prescriber, mm-hmm. so a prescriber of record. So I'm the prescriber of record for those doses, and those are ways that, that we can hopefully prevent the deaths, but it's much harder because so much of the activity is hidden and people don't want to be open about it. People don't want to tell where they got the the substances in the first place. Of course. And you talk about that partnership with law enforcement. I assume you guys are involved with pill mill investigations as well, because I know that's been a big part of the opiate phenomenon. Our biggest contribution to addressing the issue of pill mills or or even prescribing by well-intentioned physicians who just don't realize that they're being played Mm -hmm. has been our prescription drug monitoring program. Our PMP, Prescription Monitoring Program. Basically, all the prescriptions for controlled substances go into the database, and they're accessible by prescribers. They can check and see where else uh, that patient has received uh, prescriptions and, and had them filled. That has, I think, really helped our prescribers and our dispensers to prevent that sort of activity. Now, the data that comes in also um, can be looked uh, at from a data analysis to see who are the outliers. Now, just because a a prescriber prescribes a lot of opiates doesn't mean they're a pill mill or that they're doing anything wrong. Maybe that they're treating, you know, terminal cancer patients or patients who, um, uh, or maybe they're a pain medicine specialist. 
but at least that gives a, uh, an opportunity to ask some questions and look a little bit closer. And all these programs you talk about, like PMP and tracking drug use, you guys obviously have a role as medical marijuana continues to come online. How much of that are you able to fit into the structure and the programs you already have? And then how much of that is just, we got to write a new book for this? That's a very good question, Matt. For the uh, opiate issue, that in some ways fit into um, our strategic priorities. One of our six strategic priorities is mental and community health, and we could sort of shoehorn it into there. But really, to do something on that scale uh, needed new structures within our health department. And so we basically started a new branch. We put it under our Center for Health Protection, the same one that has our trauma system, our outbreak response. Uh, and um, it's very small at this point. Uh, we don't have a lot of funding for it, but uh, we have hopes that it will continue to grow as we get the resources that we need to do our part in responding to this. So we, we do have a new branch. That was one where we had to really at least write a new chapter, um, if not a new book. And while we're on the, the point of social trends and uses of drugs, but not in the sense of, of heroin or cocaine, but the growing, uh, or I don't know if it's leveled off or not, but the phenomenon of you talk about tobacco prevention. Well, now, of course, there's all these e-cigarettes and there's all these vaping tools. And those re mostly remain pretty unregulated, right? That's true. Now, uh, technically, uh, all the vaping and the e-cigarettes are, are under the authority of the, F the FDA. Oh, okay. Um, but they have not uh, yet written sort of detailed rules and regulations pertaining to, their, to them. And, and we've got all sorts of new products coming out all the time. It's really become a, a social trend as, as well as um, a public health issue. We're very concerned about that. I'm very concerned about that. Uh, we were seeing substantial decreases in the number of, of youth who were initiating smoking. Uh, the rates of smoking among high school students had dropped really by more than 50 percent in, in the last 15 years. Well, with the, with the vaping and, and the e-cigarettes, we're seeing nationally that, that uh, young people, um, teenagers, adolescents, are trying those uh, at, at uh, increasing rates. And um, so we have a, a whole new generation that's becoming addicted to nicotine. It's still unclear what will happen in the long term, but we know that at least some of those uh, young people will go on to use uh, cigarettes and, and other traditional tobacco products uh, just to satisfy that nicotine addiction. Sure. Well, as we start to wind down, let's get back more to general uh, health issues. Anything specific you'd like to promote with the, with the health department, be it uh, programs we can see this summer or just ongoing things that, that more people should engage with? Or it's your free opportunity to, to hype whatever you want. Well, I would. I, I have to say, since we still are in in flu season, uh, it's not too late to get a, a flu vaccine uh, to protect yourself and your family. And uh, as we come into the summer months, the spring and the summer, flu will be behind us. But watching out for unintentional injuries, uh, driving carefully, not texting and driving. Be mindful of um, of what you eat, and uh, try and get more physically active as much as you can. Which makes me think of one other question. Uh, the past probably three years, we've had pretty mild winters in Arkansas by our standards. Does that translate into more cases or, or outbreaks of some diseases as the weather gets 
warmer without that, the the hard freeze and the and the cold in the winter. Certainly seems to have an effect on mosquitoes. Trying to pin that exactly to uh, mosquito-borne disease, the main one that we're concerned about right now is West Nile virus. Our cases of Zika and some of these others are usually related to travel. But with West Nile virus, it's a complicated interaction between mosquitoes, birds, and and humans. But the best thing is to avoid mosquito bites, uh, regardless of whether it was a a hard freeze or not. Of course, and get rid of your standing water and all all of those great mosquito tips. If people want more information, what's the website? What's I mean, obviously they can go to there and should know their local state health clinics, but uh, where, where else are, are, are good resources? To uh, what I tell people these days, instead of trying to remember a number, just Google Arkansas <laughs> Department, Department of Health, health. Yep. and we have a new website that's a lot easier to use and get good information from. So if you haven't visited before, it's worth uh, giving it a try. All right. So let the Googles be your guide, uh, and you can find a lot more information about the Department of Health. You can also find a lot more information about these podcasts and the Central Arkansas Library System at cals.org, C-A-L-S.org, or you can just Google Central Arkansas Library System as well, and it'll take you all kinds of great places. Dr. Nate Smith, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time on Primary Sources. Thank you, Matt. You've been listening to Primary Sources, a production of the Central Arkansas Library System. For more information, please visit cals.org and butlercenter.org. Join us next time to hear more from people making a difference in Little Rock and Arkansas.